Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at EDS Indiana. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori Burns-McRobbie. We're talking today about the January 6th insurrection and the congressional hearings that are going on now. And we have three guests with us, uh, all joining us by Zoom. We have Marjorie Hershey, political science professor emeritus at Indiana University and a frequent guest of our show. Ray Haberski, who is a professor of American Studies and History at IUPUI, and Amy Cooter, who is a a consultant who focuses uh, on militia groups. She's a former senior lecturer in sociology at Vanderbilt University and has consulted with uh, congressional committees and various other people on these issues of militias. If you have questions or comments, you can join us on the show, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can send your questions there. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition, and send us questions there. And you can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811. So thank you all for being here with us today. Lori, good to have you back. Great to be here. And let's talk about uh, this historic time that we're living in. I just wanted to get an overview from all three of you about what we're witnessing now with these Hearings. Um, how you know how historic, how significant do you believe the hearings are? And uh, Margie Hershey, I'm going to begin with you. Well, I think that anything that threatens the survival of our democratic system, obviously, is extremely important. I think that um, clearly we're very polarized right now, and that gives those people who are polarized against the current administration. Lots of reasons to regard this as being trivial or something that happens all the time or something that is overdrawn in some way. But it's not. Um, Survival of democracy is a vital concern for every single one of us. And if we lose it once, we lose it forever. Ray? Yeah, I mean, I would largely agree. You know, we're investigating an unprecedented event in American history where an outgoing president riled up a crowd of Americans to attack the Capitol and tried to uh, upend a a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, almost nothing can be more important in in some ways than uh, that investigation. And Amy Cooter. I also generally agree, though I will say I think that more than the hearings themselves, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead here, but more than the hearings themselves, I think we have to look toward potential consequences for actors involved for us to have a real chance of preserving democracy as we know it. I want to uh, mention before I I turn it over to Lori for a question that we we did invite today uh, our two U.S. senators, Todd Young and Mike Braun, both of them got back to us and said they would not uh, be appearing on the show today um, because of conflicts or just not wanting to be here. Uh, we also reached out to Trey Hollingsworth, our, our Republican representative, and to the Indiana um, Republican committee chair, Kyle Hupfer, and we didn't hear back from either one of them. So we did try to get uh, those folks to join us on the air as well. Yeah. Lori? 
Yeah, thank you, Bob. I And thank you, uh, all three of you, for being here um, talk about this very, very consequential moment, uh, as, you bo- as you've all alluded to. Um, Marjorie, I wonder if you could say a little bit about um, just where this, what, what's going on with what happened on January 6th, I should say, uh, in 2021, um, it compares to where we were with Bush v. Gore in 2000, where, again, it was a contested outcome, but only briefly. And we had, in fact, a, um, a, a concession speech and a peaceful transfer of power. What, what, in your view, has shifted in the American political landscape that has allowed this to, uh, to occur? The main thing that has shifted has been a change in coalitions of the two major parties. Um, that change in coalitions was largely due to the movement of conservative white Southern Democrats over to the Republican Party. Started in the 19, late 1960s, it was pretty much complete by the 1990s. And what that produced was a much more uniformly conservative Republican Party. People who look at the Republicans now might be surprised to know that there used to be a liberal Republican wing that was largely Northeastern, that after this shift from uh, among white Southern Democrats had occurred to the Republicans, discovered that they were in the wrong party. Um, and as a result, the liberal Republicans moved to the Democrats, and we've seen a pulling apart, a polarization of the two parties' constituencies. That makes each party more united internally on issues and more different from the other party. And unfortunately, along with that has come what we call affective polarization, which means basically that you don't just think of the other party as being your opponent, you think of them as being the devil, and that as a result, there's really nothing that you can't do to stop them. Um, A majority of both Democrats and Republicans, when asked in polls, will say not only the other party's ideas are wrong, but they are dangerous to the survival of the United States as a free country. Once we get that level of emotional uh, hostility involved in partisanship, then people really do sort of feel free to um, act in whatever way they can in order to prevent the other party from doing disastrous damage. Amy, where do where do militias and, and these hate groups that you study, um, where do they fit into what Margie's talking about? Yeah, these groups are complicated, as most people are. They're not just one size fits all. Some of them are more extreme than others. They have a variety of different beliefs about specific political issues. But by and large, they tend to vote conservative. Most of them are actually libertarian, but they vote Republican because that's closer to their ideal than Democrats are. And from their perspective, most democratic policies, particularly around issues like immigration and certain kinds of social welfare spending, um, really hit at concerns they have about the direction of the country in a way that they feel like they have to step up and personally do something about that slide that Marjorie was mentioning. And how often is violence included in this doing something? Historically, violence has not been that common among these groups, but it's certainly part of their repertoire, something that they're willing to draw on if they believe circumstances become desperate enough. And circumstances certainly become desperate enough if you have a key leader who is stirring up those fears rather than helping to allay them or rather than helping to have that more peaceful transition of power that we're so accustomed to here. Yeah, and one thing that, that struck me about the hearings in listening yesterday is this idea that, you know, President Trump has taken the approach, former President Trump has taken the approach that these people stole the election from from me and from you when these hearings are showing just the opposite, an attempt by the Trump and his allies to steal the election from mm-hmm. the other side. Um, yeah, Ray, re- reaction to that? Yeah, it's remarkable uh, that somebody who assumed power 
over the most, you know, the strongest, militarily strongest country in the world, feels no compunction, feels no obligation to think about how um, what he says affects the public, affects the, the image of the United States, um, plays into the legacy of the United States or the history of the United States. I mean, it, it is the brazenness with his lying and the sort of um, the selfishness of, of his behavior uh, is remarkable. And I understand that, you know, uh, many presidents have not been angels, you know, and, and Richard Nixon 49 years ago, right, was, was his White House was on trial in the Watergate hearings. But this this really is a, a remarkable human being to have so much power um, at a time when, you know, the United States is sort of awash in guns and the idea of sort of anti-government sentiment has been running pretty high since you know uh the late 1970s it's it's a very very bad i think combination ray let me add to that that um it's not that former president trump decided after the election "Mm, there must have been fraud going on here i was doing some content analysis of mr trump's tweets and I found that starting six months before the election, mm-hmm. he was already seeding his Twitter feed with the statement, the election will be fraudulent. <laughs> um, President Trump at that yep. time had good polling. Um, he, he was undoubtedly well aware that he was headed toward losing. Mm-hmm. And this is something that apparently as an individual, he simply can't cope with. Mm-hmm. So by the time the election occurred, he had already tweeted a whole series of times, not just about what he called the fake news, but also setting people up to believe that the election result, which he suspected would not favor him, would be false. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can assume that there was some motive on his part that included not just a, oh my goodness, I lost, you know, but... I'm going to lose, and so I'm going to do my best to undermine the acceptance of the election results. I would suggest we need to push that even further. I don't know if people remember, but back in 2018, President Trump pardoned some of the ranchers who were connected to the Bundy occupation, the folks who ended up at the the Wildlife Preserve in Oregon, Um, and everything that followed from that. And at that time in 2018, among militia circles, among other circles on the right, that was really seen as a clear signal that he was going to stand up for them. And in my opinion, and I argued this at the time, it was an effort for him to effectively create a a private army, someone who would stand up for him and enact his wishes down the road. And I'm afraid that's exactly what we started seeing on the 6th. So I have a question that maybe maybe any of you could answer because there's different dimensions of it but but given that given that there was this seeding if you will and i remember the comments that that trump made in in i guess it was april or so of 2021 um that that certainly members of his inner circle and and others his supporters as well as his detractors could see this coming in a sense i mean especially people who are close to him certainly knew his personality um, and I'm struck by the fact that there was that coming before the election and then all the testimony that we've gotten from members of his inner circle who pushed back and told him repeatedly um, in the, the trenchant words of Bill Barr that I can't say on the radio um, that, that his claims were nonsense. Um, and yet they have not said anything until now. And I'm curious to to get your take on why what you think the motivations were for those who are in a position to push back publicly and take a stand against what is what people are now they're saying clearly was an attack on our democracy to stay quiet you know anybody have a sense of that yeah i think one of the most important reasons is that the loudest voices in the Republican Party now, and those are the voices of the people who take part in Republican primaries and therefore choose the party's candidates for the rest of us, have been very strongly triggered by President Trump, very strongly motivated by President Trump. Um, If you want to succeed in a primary, 
then probably you have to be able to please these people. You know that the turnout in primaries is often only 10, 15 percent. So this doesn't reflect the entire of the Republican constituency. But if you don't win the primary, you don't have a chance of winning the general election. And I think a lot of Republicans have been in the position that they know who former President Trump is. They know what he is capable of and not capable of. But in order to survive in the current Republican Party, which has moved very uh, Trumpy and and much more to the right wing than it used to, they do have to be able to maintain these kinds of links with the very strong Trump supporters. Uh, and, you know, the, I mean, in a democracy, that's what we want, right? We want people to represent public views. And there is a strong public view that says that President Trump is saying things that everybody else is afraid to say and that those views ought to get a lot of hearing. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the uh, after effects from January 6th. Um, we're doing it because of the hearings going on. Now we have three guests joining us from uh, Bloomington, Indianapolis, and Tennessee. We have Amy Cooter, who is was recently on the faculty at Vanderbilt University and is uh, has a research focus and analysis on uh, militia groups. And we have Ray Haberski, who's a professor of American Studies and History at IUPUI, and Marjorie Hershey, political science professor emeritus from Indiana University here in Bloomington. You can join us on the program at Noon Edition by sending questions there. You can follow. You can find us on news at indianapublicmedia.org and send us questions there. You can also join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811. Going back to January 6th and the events of that day, I wanted to ask uh, Amy Cooter about the the idea that there were there were people from Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and other militias and I'm sure there were a lot of other groups there. I'm struck by this idea. I I would think that a lot of the individuals in those groups would be um, would have some respect for law enforcement and understand the rule of law, but it certainly seemed like it was an attack on the people who were defending the Capitol on that day. Can you kind of speak to that issue? Right. So militia groups traditionally have a very fraught relationship with the government and with law enforcement as representatives of that government. They tend to support law enforcement, whom they see as upholding law and order, but it's usually their version of law and order. If they see them as interfering with free exercise, free speech, or something to that effect, then they very quickly become the enemy, anybody who seems to be enacting some version of control over autonomy or other freedoms that they think of as being intrinsic um, are much more of a target than they are an ally. I, um, I question, I think maybe sort of following up a little bit on um, Margie's um, response to kind of motivations for Republicans who uh, and clearly, um, uh, you know, there there are issues, let's just say, and uh, always issues in both parties. There certainly must be issues in the Republican Party right now. Um, but it, uh, I'm thinking also about the number of Republicans I know who are, are horrified, as I am, by, by what's gone on. Uh, and and why that hasn't yet led to a splintering within the party. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, uh, just sort of thinking historically, Ray, you might want to speak to this, and Margie, I'm sure you can too, um, where there might be some antecedents, uh, maybe in the run-up to the Civil War, uh, mm. when when parties actually split apart because the 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 direction that the party was being taken and was just went too far for what then became a, a significant number of people in that yeah, party. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I really wonder uh, if we're going to see um, some sort of splintering. I mean, you know, Liz Cheney has has sort of echoed uh, what I think some Republicans uh, are, are suggesting, which is that where does all of this sort of Trumpism or felity to Trump, where does it lead exactly? <laughs> you know, At some point, there will come a decision, uh, a, a turning point where Republicans are going to have to try to calculate um, what the value of being part of a, a certain type of tone or 
uh, ideology or, um, I don't know, uh, sort of like an obligation, as I think Cheney keeps saying, obligation to reality and truth will will begin to force people to think about uh, what they want for their local parties or for the nation itself. And then you'll begin to see potentially some leaders emerge who will try to to bridge whatever it is. You know, it could be issues on climate change and uh, the economy in a way that doesn't really need to address uh, the lies that Trump and his cronies have been peddling for the last, you know, uh, six years or so. So I, I, I do think that it is possible that we're coming to some sort of uh, turning point in that sense, that you begin to see a few other leaders begin to emerge. But again, you know, it's interesting to think about this. Before the Civil War, um, it was very clear how the country was beginning to divide and there was very little way again for for at least two decades for politicians seemingly to deal with it even though they knew exactly what was coming that the storm was emerging this was not some you know shock uh, to the country but it still was very difficult to sort of overcome and it led to the worst catastrophe in u.s history yeah margie do you have any any thoughts on this yes um Sometimes parties do split. Uh, when they split, the opposition party usually wins. Um, we found that in 1908 when uh, Theodore Roosevelt, 1912, I guess, when Theodore Roosevelt mm-hmm. decided that he had had enough of his protege, William Howard Taft, and formed what was then called the Bull Moose Party. And both the Bull Moose, Bull Meese, uh, <laughs> whatever, um, <laughs> And uh, the Republicans lost the presidential mm-hmm. race um, because when you divide a party, especially when the two parties are pretty equally um, populated as they are right now, you undercut your own majority. Mm-hmm. So that's a real disincentive for a party to split. Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, one of the things that parties do when they're in this situation is that they just try to change the subject. Um, one of the things that's been hardest for us, I think, about the current polarization is that when you look at the party's platforms over the last 50 years or so, you see that although most people are very concerned, especially with the economy, the two parties' platforms, which used to have the economy front and center, have increasingly been moving, especially the Republicans, toward what are called the culture wars issues. Um, It's really tough to bargain on an issue like abortion or the rights of transgender people. I mean, either you have them or you don't. Economic issues, um, if one party says we need X amount of, of budget cuts or taxes and the other party says we need Z amount, you can split the difference and form a compromise. You really have a hard time compromising. Do you allow some abortions? Then the people who think that abortion is murder, then they're saying, okay, I'll allow some murders. That's really not easy to do. But um, I think that uh, we've learned in research in political science over time that parties learn slowly and not very efficiently. Part of that has to do with the big lie that's been generated over the past few years. When you get enough people committed to something that is counterfactual, it's pretty embarrassing for them to say, oops, you know, um, yeah, this evidence was there all the time that works against what it was that I believed, but I chose not to pay attention to it. And that means that a party's commitment to a particular issue often lasts longer than that issue warrants because there are just a lot of people who have committed themselves emotionally and they just can't move away from it. Our producer suggested a question I was going to hold to the end, but I think it fits in really well right now about are we going to see any of this, um, you know, any of this change or influence before the midterms? Will will these hearings have any impact on the midterms? What? Don't we wish we knew, right? Yeah, that we worth a lot of money <laughs> to various various campaigns. I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I think people hope that there'll be some influence and that somebody. But I, I think you know what you the response you got from the representatives to to come on the show might 
indicate where we're headed. Nobody wants to talk about it who's actually running, potentially running for office, unless it's going to help them in a very particular way. And I think we know which way that is. We have a phone call that we're going to go to. Owen Johnson is a professor emeritus here at Indiana University, and Owen's on the line. Owen, what's your question? Thanks, Bob. Um, the question is um, a crystal ball type question. Uh, 2032 will be the 100th anniversary of the election of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, mm-hmm. Was a kind of revolution. Um, what do the panelists think the United States will be like, given the current situation, in 2032? All right. Which one? Which of you wants to handle yeah. that one? A big crystal ball. I think, I think social scientists are much better than historians <laughs> on crystal balls. <laughs> oh, I think historians have a lot of good reason to answer this question. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, journal, take, journalists don't, and I know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I can Go take ahead, a small Ray. crack at it. I mean, certainly we're going to, you know, we're still talking about the trends politically that are polarizing um, uh, polarizing politics through the parties. Now, that that is not going to take into to account the trends in, in certain types of themes or topics that are going to happen whether or not Republicans and Democrats want them to. So, you know, big things like climate change are still going to be incredibly important. Um, healthcare is still going to be incredibly. I mean, we just went through a pandemic that changed the economy uh, in ways that I think were unpredictable. Um, so, it, w- it would be it would be nice to imagine that some of these things that require bipartisan action uh, will force the parties to work together, or that there might be, like I said, some sort of turning point where leaders begin to emerge that that do not sound like uh, those that we've had since, I would say, you know, the late 1970s or the 1980s, who basically use the state or the government as an enemy to run against. I mean, it would be nice if we could imagine, you know, leaders emerging that that see uh, national politics as, as a means to a better end for the public. But, you know, that's that's that would be uh, a nice legacy of Franklin Roosevelt to put it that way. I think one thing that Amy might want to address is that we shouldn't uh, downplay the impact of the level of anxiety that we all feel on the the willingness of some people to do some kinds of acts that they might not be inclined to do if we were less anxious as a society. The impact of the pandemic is not at all trivial. Um, Many people tend to downplay it but it's generated a lot of fear. And fear is what leads to the acceptance of erosion of civil liberties in the face of a sense that there is a a much more dramatic threat that we need to deal with. And one of those threats, it could be a threat, it could be a benefit, that we're inevitably facing now is that our population is changing in composition more rapidly now than it probably ever has. Um, we are becoming a much more multiracial, multicultural society. And that uh, probably generates fear in a lot of people. I mean, I suppose it's probably evolutionary that, that people are less inclined to trust people who look different from them than people who look the same. Um, we know that in 2014, that was the beginning of the first year when the majority of babies born in the United States were people of color. That's going to continue and probably increase in the next 20 years. And I think we have to be very careful about letting that level of fear and hostility that's been brewing lead us to uh, a variety of efforts that slowly undo a number of the safeguards that we have for our democratic system. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll just add that social scientists aren't exactly known for their optimism. <laughs> and, uh, with respect to the, the question, I think that that's a great question. But honestly, I think 
I think a lot hinges on the next presidential election cycle that that we won't really know that we're kind of at a very pivotal moment here and much depends on precisely how 2024 shakes out. I want to bring you back a little bit to uh, the hearings that are going on now because Amy Cooter, you have uh, you told us you worked a little bit behind the scenes with the the uh, January sixth committee. Can you talk as much as you can about about what your role has been? Sure. So with that particular investigation, my job has been to help um, certain members of the committee understand the militia landscape specifically so not even just the the particular groups who've been involved like the oath keepers or the proud boys but for example what motivates people to join militias in general what then has to occur for people like that to move from just kind of a belief system into something resembling january 6th or something that is violent action more broadly okay Mm I wanted to, yeah, keep, uh, I think on the, the hearings, and specifically yesterday was, um, you know, a little bit the um, Mike Pence hour, shall we say, or two hours, because so much yeah. of it focused specifically on his role in certifying mm-hmm. the election. And, and, you know, this is where the Electoral Count Act of 1887 was, was brought up. And, and, um, and I'm, I'm curious to know, um, I guess, a couple things here. One is uh, what, what you all think in with respect to how Pence conducted himself, what you think that might do uh, to his reputation? Because, of course, in certain circles, he's been seen as simply a, you know, a, a toady for for Trump. But he he did he did come out publicly and um, very clearly denounced Trump's claims that he had the power to uh, to overturn the election results. Um, but I don't believe he has said anything about the election results themselves or has, has pushed back against a big lie. But I may have missed something. And I'm wondering if you think that Pence is, you know, going back to our discussion about the parties splintering and new leaders emerging, if you think Pence, uh, Pence's reputation has somehow um, uh, been burnished a little bit here, certainly he, he has emerged as having done something very heroic and brave, um, considering the threat to his life. Um, but is that enough, perhaps, to uh, to lead him forward? And as we look ahead to twenty twenty four, I think there are two issues here that you bring up quite nicely. One is that he was threatened by the at that point the outgoing president and those followers of him uh, who believe this big lie. That is just so scary, you know. And of course, it, it um, it's a long. There was a long list of people that were targeted because of of Trump's misinformation, lies, um, and sort of uh, accommodation to to violent extremism. But the other thing is is that Pence basically stated the facts. He could could do nothing. Um, And the fact that he stuck to that, I I guess, is in in a sense courageous in the face of of somebody uh, like Trump who was trying to bully him into doing something. But I think all all Pence was, was really doing in that moment uh, around January 6th was stating the obvious. And it's pretty clear from the hearings that um, it, whatever various counsel that, that uh, Trump got uh, were misleading, wrong, uh, were going to be um, proven wrong one way or another, and, and that Pence was simply staying on uh, a track that he couldn't get off. You know, whether or not he wanted to. And I know that there was some suggestion early on that that Pence was sort of investigating what his role could be, you know, in in the final count of the Electoral uh, College. But in any in any case, uh, he did do his duty during that day. And and uh, and yeah, I mean, I I guess that is a commendable, commendable act. Yeah. Well, and I want just a quick follow up with um, for you, Amy, is is. Is from from what you know of uh, these militia groups, and maybe maybe more specifically than you can you can speak to. Do you think the threat uh, against his life was was real? I do think the threat against his life was real. I think that many people who were involved that day um, maybe were in over their heads. Things went a different direction than what they had envisioned, but were easily caught up in the moment and were very easily influenced by people who did have a more concrete plan. I think that Pence or, frankly, any of our our representatives who were seen as opposing their interests, as as working against the interest of the the nation as they think it should be, were in genuine danger for their lives. 
Mm-hmm. I also think that, and I, I agree with what Raymond said in terms of the, the objective assessment of Pence here, but I also think that we have to wonder who exactly is the audience for these hearings. Because among militia groups, among people who really genuinely believe that that election was stolen, regardless of whether they were at the Capitol on the 6th or not, these arguments simply aren't going to be persuasive. As Marjorie mentioned, they're already invested in this line of reasoning. They're not going to simply change their mind when confronted with very factual information. And so for them, Pence's testimony really only underscores their perception of him as a traitor, as somebody who wasn't brave enough to stand up and do what they thought needed to be done. I think that that sort of leads to a question about you know, shouldn't we expect, um, and, and maybe you know, militia have a different view of this? But you know, we are, we do have a, we're a nation of laws. You know, Tre- uh, Pence basically said, the law says this, and I'm going to follow the law. Is that just not enough anymore? That it, as a as a standard, have we changed the standard of what are what's expected of people that we elect? Well, it's long been a truism among these groups that they will point to our history and even draw from things like the civil rights movement and say, you know, just because something is a law doesn't mean that it is just. And of course, that is objectively true, but then the way it applies becomes very subjective. And so for them, the law is something that um, can be really kind of permeable, right? They sort of slip in and out of definitions that that work for them in certain circumstances that they feel like are, are just or not within that framework. Well, I, I want this is another one of those questions I just feel like I have to ask. When we're talking about militias, um, are these essentially white men? <laughs> mostly, yes. Not exclusively, but mostly. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a follow up to that. I mean, it's well, good. It's good to know who we're talking about, yeah. though. I think because it does get to. I think what, what uh, Marjorie was saying earlier about the culture wars that there has been this sort of idea that identity is at stake, and it has you know the, sort of uh, this sort of long termish debate over what America is and who gets to tell us or who gets to to uh, establish the standards by which we measure ourselves and. You know, I mean, Watergate is really important here in some ways because it was sort of the beginning of um, really wild conspiracy theories beginning to take hold in the United States. Uh, Vietnam was really important because it it undermined, I think, a lot of the faith that Americans had and what the mission of the United States was. Remember, Ronald Reagan uh, sort of ran on the idea that the government was the problem, not the solution to uh, America, you know, to uh, the citizens of the United States having issues with the economy or whatever. So uh, it's <laughs> it, it is important to remember who is taking up arms and shouting down the other side and asking for uh, for the government to sort of uh, bow to its will. I mean, it's it's a real problem. Uh, that these these militias are full of white armed white men uh, who think they know better than anybody else and best for everybody. Yeah, it, I, think this, pol- yeah. I think the polarization uh, that we've discussed has had a lot of effect on this as well, because, um, you know, speaking frankly, if the law were perfectly clear, we wouldn't need courts. Right. Because right. the law would just um, administer itself. But there are a variety of views that uh, any given law can reflect. And I think we're in a time, given the strong polarization of what we call motivated reasoning, um, you know, that first you arrive at your conclusion and then you look for evidence to support it. And we uh, now, partly as a result of the increasing number of media channels and partly as a result of the loss of the Fairness Doctrine, we have a variety of news sources that people can basically wrap themselves in, in which they will never hear any but one side. Mm. And when you only hear one side, um, it's natural for you to be able to think that it's just not very sensible for anybody to hold the other side, you know, and maybe as a result, 
they're not good people. Maybe as a result, they're uh, the devil incarnate trying to cause problems. And um, the extent to which the Republican Party has become dominated by religious symbolism, there are a lot of folks there who do see the world in terms of there's the devil and there are the good people, and we have to keep watching out for the devil. And for a lot of them, the devil looks a lot like Democrats these days. I want to mention that was Marjorie Hershey, political science professor emeritus, IU. Uh, Raymond Habersky, professor of American studies and history at IUPUI. And Amy Cooter, uh, former senior lecturer in sociology at Vanderbilt University and uh, consultant on militia groups are all with us here today. We have a phone call, and we're going to go to uh, John Clower has a question. John? Hello. Um, Panelists have uh, mentioned uh, so far uh, some of the psychological and emotional issues involved in uh, the current situation. Uh, For example, the ease with which uh, a mob can be directed, or as uh, Ms. Hershey was citing, fear that derives from the COVID uh, pandemic. And uh, I note that there was a, a career-long CIA profiler named Gerald Post who published a book on the difference between destructive charisma and constructive charisma and said that there was a codependent relationship between the charismatic leader, such as Trump, and his followers. Mm-hmm. So my question is, do you think civic education needs to include discussions of the individual and crowd psychological and emotional issues that affect political um, activity. Thank you for the question. Um, I'll jump in and say yes. First of all, I think that uh, many people would benefit from just basic understanding of human psychology. It's something that feels natural to us because, of course, we are all humans with brains. But there are things about how we think, and especially how we think about each other in groups, that aren't necessarily so self-explanatory. Another thing that I think that is, is sort of the flip side of that coin, though, is also more honest lessons about our own mm-hmm. history. Many school kids today are still taught things like, well, the civil rights movement just kind of it happened because it needed to. We made mistakes in our past, and it was only a handful of racists who really opposed it. And we don't remember and we don't teach exactly how hard fought mm-hmm. that was. We're not allowed to say the word racism today in some classrooms. And I think that lack of honesty makes it really hard for us to confront a variety of ongoing issues and to help us understand how we all could collectively do much better. Yeah, I I, think that's true. No, go ahead, Ray. I think we were all trying to talk at the same time. (laughs) Ray, Ray, Ray or Margie? No, Margie, go ahead. I think we ask a lot of civic education. I think we ask a lot of the schools, and by the time our students get to our schools, they've already had five or six years with their families who have been pretty effective over time in communicating their own perspective about politics and society. Um, We really do try (laughs) to to do civic education. And we find that, you know, you can tell people in classes on Congress, this is how a bill becomes law these days. And then when you read their final exams, you get a clear exposure to the limits of the power of education to influence people's understanding. Um, I think that this probably comes from uh, some pretty basic levels of us as a species. We're, we're kind of tribal. We tend to get more tribal when we get fearful. And I think probably there are two answers to this. One of them is just we have to start changing the subject. When we have a state legislature that spends weeks on the issue of transgender people being athletes in high schools. And when you think about the fact that maybe about 1% of the American population identifies as transgender, 
and then there's a smaller proportion of those who are in school, and then there's a much smaller proportion of those who are in sports, this is really sort of not at the top of any rational agenda for a political body. We need to be spending time on things that we can compromise on, like economic issues, which most of us consider particularly important. It's just that some of these culture wars issues are a lot better at raising money from very anxious people than the economic questions are. And the other thing that I think would really be helpful is for more and more of us to just become more civically involved at the local level. We need to be able to be involved in activities that help people alongside people who disagree with us because we're not going to run into them otherwise um, our friendship circles tend to be defined by the same polarization that our politics is defined by but if we can get to the point where we think okay uh, this person I'm working with may have some really weird ideas about politics but they're packing food at the food bank just like I am, and maybe that helps me find some point of commonality with them. It's time for us to start thinking of the ways that we can work together and to just tell people who want to divide us, you know what, we're not listening anymore. We have about seven minutes to go in the program, and we have a lot of ground we'd still like to cover. So, Lori? <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I, I was very uh, glad uh, the caller's question, I think, setting up this whole um, piece of thinking about civic education, thinking about next generation and so forth. And it is really crucial, uh, I think, despite all the the – the the fact as as um uh, Margie as you pointed out that certainly by the time kids get to school there's there's already been a lot of um uh socialization in certain directions and um and and we can't put all this on the schools i mean we have a tendency to say well the schools just should teach more about i think you know we all have to understand that uh, if we if we want to have a democracy, it it means we have to do some work. And I I don't think necessarily when you know when I was learning civics or even kind of growing up, even though I had a politically active family, that that really this idea that 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 democracy requires us all to work um, at maintaining our our civil society, and that that is that can be a very it's not only an obligation, but it can be a very joyful thing. Um, I, I think for you know a lot of us, we just think in terms of you know our our, our careers and and getting ahead. So I think just you know going back to some of the other comments and trying to wrap them up, I think it's you know this notion of you know we really do need to invest uh, in each other, and part of that is also understanding uh, our, our the psychology of of each other as well as Amy pointed out. Um, I wanted. That's not a question. I apologize for soapboxing a little bit. Not my role. Um, let me let me quickly turn back to the hearings. I'm interested to know uh, uh, from each of you who you think the most consequential figure is or has been so far in these hearings, and uh, who you're looking forward to hearing from. Margie, I know you've got an opinion on this. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Bob. Um, you know who I think has been the most consequential figure in this whole process has been Representative Elizabeth Cheney of Wyoming. Um, when we go back to the future of the former vice president, Mr. Pence, um, it is not a winning proposition to uh, tee off a good chunk of the people who would otherwise support you and take the position and gain the favor of people who will otherwise oppose you because they'll still oppose you. We're still polarized. So um, Vice President Pence is walking a very fine line. So is Liz Cheney, although it looks as though she won't be walking it for a very long time now. But I think we have seen some clear evidence that there are some folks in the Republican Party who are not totally devoted to President Trump and whatever it is that he happens to be saying at the time. And, um, uh, of course, we know that in theory, but I think it's pretty dramatic to see it in practice. Mm -hmm. Ray, one minute. Yeah, I'd say Greg Jacob. Uh, he was the uh, White House 
uh, lawyer um, who was close to Mike Pence. He, he's been giving some really incredible detailed testimony about the discussions that that, uh, that Eastman was having uh, with Pence and with his his counsel. And I think that um, if you if you compress all that he has said, he's given the the, the best sort of window into. Um, how Trump knew what he was doing was wrong. He was doing it anyway, and he had allies trying to make it work and creating this sort of uh, mob mentality that would push his his uh, his agenda forward. All right, Amy. You know, in some ways, I think you're asking me to review a movie before it's over. Um, but my <laughs> response is also Liz Cheney here, and I think it's for for. Some of those reaching across the aisle issues more than anything else for me, trying to sort of help some folks, including people in the Democratic Party, remember that not everyone um, supported or continues to support Trump might have some important inroads as we move forward. I want to follow up with you about so Judge Michael Ludig also. He really demonized President, uh, former President Trump and his allies yesterday. How how, how did that affect you? Amy? Um, you know, I, I think that he was an interesting one to watch. I think all of the folks who, at least from an outside perspective, um, have been ardent Trump supporters who now have this video and other evidence and the, the overt testimony kind of undercutting Trump um, could be impactful. Again, among the groups I study, though, it's going to take much more than that to persuade them that the election wasn't stolen or that we would be better off with even a different Republican in power in 2024. All right. Thank you all. This has been a, a enlightening conversation today and we really appreciate all three of you being here that was uh, last speaker was amy cooter uh former faculty member at vanderbilt university who is a consultant and uh, analyst on militia groups we also heard from raymond haberski professor of american studies and history at iupui and our good friend marjorie hershey political science professor emeritus at indiana university for myself bob salzberg and laurie mcrobbie along with our engineer mike pashkash and producers holden abshire kathy knapp and benta boutier i'm bob salzberg thanks for listening Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.